I'm John Dauberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the latest edition of our 2018 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Strategies for Protecting Corn Against Yield-Robbing Western Bean Cutworm, is brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. I'd like to take a moment to thank Montag Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto steer carts. Montag's Precision Fertilizer Placement Solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. A major supporter of agronomic education, Montag is a title sponsor of each of our four ag events per year, and their sponsorship of this podcast allows us to share meaningful knowledge with you via audio as well. Visit their website today at www.montagmfg.com or call 712-852-4572. Western bean cutworm has become an increasingly important pest of corn in the Midwest. Populations in many states are increasing and, at the same time, some BT hybrids that used to help with this pest are less and less effective as the insects gain resistance. In our podcast, Kelly Tillman, field crop specialist at Ohio State University Extension, We'll talk about the rise of BT resistance in western bean cutworm, pest biology, and management strategies to help defeat this pest and protect yields. While enjoying this program, I also encourage you to download a PDF of Kelly's presentation provided on the No-Till Farmer landing page for this podcast so you can follow along and learn about additional resources for managing western bean cutworm in corn. So western bean cutworm, unlike a lot of our insect pests, is actually a, a native pest to the U.S., but it's native to the southwest United States, where for most of our recorded entomological history in southwestern U.S., it was a pest of dry beans and to some extent uh, corn. And so that's why it's called bean cutworm, because it also feeds on dry beans. Uh, but it can cause heavy damage to corn, and this is a pretty typical type of damage that it might cause in corn. It does feed directly on the corn ear, and in bad situations it looks like something's taking a big old chomp out of the corn. For the past 10 years or so, I think the main BT that people have relied on for management of uh, western bean cutworm is the Cry1F protein, uh, which would be in like Herculex and Herculex Extra. And this is no longer providing adequate control. So the reason why we're seeing an upswing of western bean cutworm in the upper Midwest is for two reasons. One, its range is spreading, and at the same time, the BT that was kind of the main line of defense against it is really no longer effective. So I'll talk about those two things. This is a little bit about the life stages. They start out as eggs that get laid in these tight clustered little egg masses uh, relative, this is relative to a penny. They hatch into these tiny little caterpillars that have these black head capsules 
they grow, they go through several different stages of growth as caterpillars until they turn into this kind of big ugly thing. I'm told they make good fish bait. I've never tried that out, but that, that I've been told that. And eventually this is the adult moth. Now it started out in the southwestern United States for most of the history of its range was right in here. Then it began expanding its range through more of the western US. And then by the mid-2000s, it started becoming common in Iowa and Nebraska. And since the early to mid-2000s, it has been expanding rapidly eastward into the central and eastern Corn Belt. And now it occurs as far east as New York State. This is just to show you how quickly uh, this change has happened. Uh, Michigan has had a nice trapping program from the very beginning, so I'm showing you what's happened in Michigan. Each of these counties that has a number in it is a county where the western bean cutworm was trapped starting in 2008. So sporadic throughout, as of 2009, one year later, much heavier numbers, and then one year later yet, it's huge, big, large numbers throughout the state. That's how quickly this thing has been spreading. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the biology before I talk about the damage that you'll see from it, and then I will talk a little bit about management. This moth has one generation per year. The adults will be on the wing, the adults will be flying, the adults will be laying eggs and corn basically from uh, early July through early to mid-August. The moths are nocturnal. They'll fly at night. They'll look for mates, and at nighttime they will lay their eggs in corn and then kind of rest in the nooks and crannies of corn during the day. And the adults will live pretty much till the end of the summer, at which point, as soon as you get your first good frost, the adults will die. Now the Latin name of western bean cutworm is Striacosta albicosta, and I like to point this out because Latin names often actually do have meaning embedded in them. Stria means stripe. Western bean cutworms have a stripe. Alba is white. They have a white stripe, not only along the side of their body, but a characteristic sort of sickle-shaped set of stripes right there, and then this white diet. So stria, stripe, costa, side or back, alba, white. They have a white stripe on their back. But that is uh, this dot and this little sickles thing and this white stripe are good uh, characters for identifying the adults. This is some of our trap data from Ohio. We run a trapping network in Ohio during the summer to figure out when the moths are peaking. And the point of this graph is just to show you, this was from 2016. We first started to get a little bit of moth flight activity in the beginning of July built up, it peaked around July 24th, and then it tapered off until towards the end of August. Now this is important because when they're flying and when they're peak, peaking in their flight is when you're going to get the peak of the egg laying in the field, which is going to determine when the caterpillars are going to start causing damage. And this shape of this distribution is always going to look sort of like the bell shape, but the time might be different depending on the year and the climate and the temperature and all this, we might have our peak July 10th. We might have it August 7th. Who knows? It's always going to be somewhere in here, but when are we going to have the peak? And that's why we run the yearly annual trapping network. The eggs 
take about five to seven days to hatch after they're laid. They usually occur in clumps of anywhere up to like 25 to 100. And they change color as they age, which is a good thing to know because when it comes time to spray, it's tricky. Getting the timing of the spraying is tricky and you want to spray after most of the eggs have hatched. So it's good to know when those eggs may hatch. They start out white and then as they get a little bit older, these eggs, they turn this sort of tannish pink. And then when they turn purple, that means you're within one or two days of hatch. So if you've got a lot of egg masses in your field and you're pondering a spray, you want to wait till everything goes purple before you get ready to pull the trigger. There are five or six, depending on development temperatures, stages for the larvae as they get big. They start out as these cute little things. The very first thing they do is they eat their eggshells. Those eggshells have a lot of nice little nutrient and proteins in it. And this is a group of uh, Western Maine cutworm that have uh, eaten down their eggshells the first thing they do. After they do that, they move on to, uh, they, they'll feed on pollen for a few days, so they'll move towards the tassel. Here's a, a closer up of the little baby's first instars with those black head capsules and the ghost of the uh, eggshell that they've eaten. As they grow, they start to develop these two characteristic black stripes on the head. Um, the older they get, the more dark these two stripes will be. And as they get a little bit bigger, they stop feeding on pollen and they actually move to the ear. And they'll chew on the silk a little bit, but their real goal is the corn kernels. So they'll either enter the ear through the, through the silk area or sometimes they will drill right through the side like a bullet through the side of the ear of corn into the kernel and feed in from the side. This just shows how much bigger they get over the course of their development and again those two black stripes which are much less obvious in the little guys. So then after they've had their fill of eating corn during the summer, uh, in late September, uh, shortly before you harvest, they'll exit the ear of corn, they'll fall down into the ground and they'll dig down a bit and they'll create this earthen chamber and they will pupate in that earthen chamber and spend the winter underground in the cornfield. And then in May, they'll finish their development and then start emerging again as adults in sometime in June, July. This is the type of damage. They can feed on the side and take out large chunks. They can feed, if they've gone in at the tip, they can feed heavily on the kernels of the tip. Sometimes they'll have more of this bullet hole type feeding into the ear of corn. Uh, unlike corn earworm, which are cannibalistic and you tend not to find multiple larvae, uh, unlike them, these are not cannibalistic. So you can have many per ear. So sometimes that can end, end up being quite, amount of, quite a lot of damage per ear. Another type of damage you may see other than this gouging, sometimes they'll strip along the top of the kernels and make sort of a white scraping kind of damage. And you know, often it's not actually the amount of corn that they're eating that makes them a problem or a pest, but what it does to the corn. This um, opens the corn up to mold. So very often where there's been western bean cutworm feeding, you'll get really nasty molds developing which affects the quality of the corn. And often that's as large of a concern as the actual yield loss. So this is an example of a particularly gnarly moldy ear from uh, 
John Obermeyer at Purdue, one of my colleagues who gave me this picture. Sometimes you'll see the damage at the end, often it's in the middle, sometimes it's at the tip, sometimes it's at both, and sometimes from the outside all you may see is this round hole, and then if you pull back that husk you'll see the damage beneath. This is a field in Indiana, again from John Obermeyer, where every year in this row had western bean cutworm damage. We'll rejoin my conversation with field crop specialist Kelly Tillman in a moment, but I wanted to take time to once again thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. A major supporter of agronomic education, Montag is a title sponsor of each of our four ag events per year, and their sponsorship of this podcast allows us to share meaningful knowledge with you via audio as well. Visit their website today at www.montagmfg.com or call 712-852-4572. Now let's get back to Kelly Tillman's presentation as she discusses why some mainline defenses for western bean cutworm have lost their effectiveness and what other management options no-tillers might have. In addition to conventional spraying management and proper scouting, she'll also discuss the importance of trapping networks to manage this pest and limit the damage to your corn crop. So as I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, uh, Cry1F protein, so that was the, uh, the BT in Herculex 1, Herculex Extra, SmartStax brands, um, used to be moderately effective. It wasn't like silver bullet, but it provided some protection. Uh, against western bean cutworm. Now it is uh, really not effective uh, to the point where finally the companies who market um, these brands no longer list western bean cutworm on the label as uh, something controlled. They've sort of thrown up their hands and admitted, yeah, you're right. I mean, the extension entomologists have been nagging them for three years to do this, and finally I think they uh, conceded that yes, indeed, this is a problem. So the, these insects have developed resistance to this BT. Uh, and that's not just in one or two locations. That's pretty widespread throughout its range. It's certainly the case in Michigan, Ohio, very much the case in Nebraska. So it's a pretty widespread phenomenon. This is uh, some examples from Ohio corn where these were definitely Cry1F containing ears because these test strips, we use these test strips to look for the presence of the protein. And yes, they had the BT in it, these ears did, but Obviously, there was no um, damage protection there. So what other options do we have in terms of the BTs? Well, there is another uh, BT protein that, that is on the market. Um, VIP3A is the protein, and that would be in something like AgriSure Viptera. This does appear to provide adequate control of Western bean, but one of the problems is it's not widely available in all uh, corn growing regions yet. For example, in Ohio, and I know we have a number of Ohio growers in the, in the room here, you can get it, but it's not really widely available. And so it's not available enough yet that everyone who might want to plant it can get it. I think there are uh, marketing plans underway to ramp up production for 
the Eastern Corn Belt, but at this point, um, it's not like everybody who might want it could be able to plant it, but hopefully that will change. Beyond that, it is possible to use conventional management. Uh, you can spray for western bean cutworm. The catch is that it is very tricky with the timing. The timing is very important. The products uh, are, are nothing exotic. They're widely available. A number of things are registered. Good old warrior is actually extremely effective against western bean cutworm, at least in our region. Although my colleague in Nebraska, Julie Peterson, tells me they're starting to see resistance um, to this pesticide there. But anyway, it, it, most of the uh, pyrethroids that we have are effective. But the timing is the thing, getting the timing right. That's because there's only a very limited window of time where the caterpillars are exposed. The eggs get laid on the leaves, the little guys kind of squirrel around on the plant, and then they go into the ear. And once they've gone into the ear, they are protected from the insecticide. You can't reach them. They're safe. They've got their shelter in the ear. So you have that window of time that's pretty tight to make your spray before they um, are protected from it. So getting the timing of that spraying is very important. Otherwise, it's a waste. And so because getting your timing is very important, Scouting is very important because the scouting really gives you your clues as to the best time to spray for best effect. So there's a two-pronged approach that we recommend for scouting. And the first is kind of the larger order scouting, which is trapping the adults to know when the adults are peaking, to know when the adults are most abundant, because that's when the eggs will be laid. And that's shortly thereafter is when you're going to have your most caterpillars. Now you can either do your own trapping or you can rely on if your state has a trapping network where they report the results. Uh, Ohio has a trapping network. So in the northern half of Ohio where most of the Western Bean Cutworm activity is most, many of our counties, the extension educators go out each week and uh, collect data from traps and send it to my program we compile that into a, uh, a report, a map, and publish that each week in our um, agronomy newsletter, our corn newsletter. So that kind of gives people in Ohio a general heads up as to the trends of, okay, there's uh, numbers are picking up, this is a big year, or, well, nothing much is happening yet. You can also build your own trap for your own fields, which if you're really concerned about it is a good approach because they're easy. These traps are very easy. Oh, this is just an example of one of the reports that we have each week where we show the trap catches in the different counties and show the trend over the course of the season. So these traps, you can buy them from places like uh, Great Lake IPM. It's a pheromone trap. There's a sexual attraction pheromone suspended over this bucket and then there's a fluid in the bucket to catch the adults, but you can make your own. You still need to buy the lure, but you can just make a trap out of a milk jug with holes cut in the side. And you want to put this about, you know, five feet from the edge of the cornfield and put some antifreeze in the bottom. And then you dangle the lure that you've bought down in through the cap. And you just go in there and you fish around at least weekly and look for those adult moths. So once you start catching uh, adults in your traps or once the state network shows that it's starting to happen, that's when you should do the second arm of your scouting program, which is the field scouting. And this is uh, to give you clues on when hatch is going to occur. 
because if you're only going to be able to spray once, you want to get the timing as right as you can. And you're maybe not going to be able to kill them all, but you want to time that spraying so that you're hitting the most of them that you can. So when you're catching more than one adult per night, that's when it's time to start scouting. And these little egg masses are usually on the newest two or three vertical leaves, newest leaves of the corn. So that kind of helps you a little bit. You don't have to look at the whole corn plant. You look at the two or three newest vertical leaves. You want to focus your search on pre-tassel corn or, or corn that's just about ready to tassel, really, just, just, just getting ready to start tasseling because that's where the females uh, tend to prefer to lay their eggs. And another little trick to help with your scouting is as you walk along the row, get the sun behind the leaves so you're walking into the sun and it's actually a lot easier to spot the shadows of the eggs as the sun shines through them. So you don't, you're not even necessarily examining the leaves minutely for the egg masses. You're looking for these little clumpy shadows on the two or three uppermost leaves. This is another good example of how looking for the shadows can kind of help. So you want to look at at least 10 plants in 10 separate locations. So you're looking at about 100 plants and you don't just want to walk down one row to do this. You want to try to catch different parts of your field. So cross some rows, look in different parts. Again, focus on that pre-tassel corn that's just about to tassel. Here are some little first instar caterpillars that have already hatched. So our, our recommendation of a threshold is if five to eight percent of the plants that you've scouted have egg masses, we suggest that is uh, appropriate level for a spray treatment. Uh, spinosad is another, if you don't want to use a warrior or pyrethroid, you can use a spinosad. Uh, but many chemicals are available. So again, you want to spray after the eggs have hatched, because if you just spray the eggs themselves, the insecticide's not going to work as well. But you want to spray them before the larvae have a chance to burrow into the uh, developing years. So that's where looking for those purple eggs can help, because if you've got a lot of egg masses and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm going to have to do it, I'm going to have to spray, wait for them, the bulk of the egg masses, to turn purple. And that lets you know those things are going to hatch in one or two days. And another thing is you want to use a product that has a good long residual on it, because that way um, you kind of catch a longer wave because as the, let's say you spray and some of your egg masses haven't hatched, if you've used something with a good residual, they'll hatch, they'll trek across the plant, and they'll be exposed to the product yet. So it kind of gives you a bigger window that you're catching. One interesting point Kelly made, I think, is that conventional spraying management is a viable option to fight western bean cutworm with products such as Warrior or other pyrethroids. But like many other management issues in no-till systems, it's all about the timing and getting the product applied at the right time to be effective. If you're looking for helpful tips and information to help you fertilize and protect your no-till crops, consider what the National No-Tillage Conference has to offer. Register online today for just $304 and $85 savings off the full rate. Save even more when you register additional farm family members for just $279. 
or complete and return the downloadable registration form by going to notillconference.com. To register by phone or to speak with an NNTC staff member, please call 262-432-0388 or email your questions to nntc at no-tillfarmer.com. Now let's return to the program as Ohio State University field crop specialist Kelly Tillman discusses when and where the western bean cutworm caterpillars move, when they're likely to be out and about on corn, and how residual products in your pesticide application can help improve control of this pest. This is data that uh, my colleague Chris Stefanzo at Michigan State collected. She wanted to know when and where do these little caterpillars move. So these are days after hatch of the egg masses. She found a whole bunch of egg masses on the plants and she tracked where the caterpillars went. One day after hatch, five days, 10 days, 14 days, up to 28 days. And she found that within one day after hatch, so right after hatching, most of the caterpillars, 57%, had made it to the tassels or the tassel leaf. So that's the first place they had. Five days after hatch, they were pretty evenly distributed between the tassel or the tassel leaf and the leaf axles. So they're still out there on the plant five days after hatch. Ten days after they hatch, most of them, 73%, have made it to the silks. So they're getting ready to get safe now, right? And then thereafter, 14 and onward, they are pretty much within the developing ear and they're safe. So what this means, what this boils down to, is that you have seven-ish days after hatch um, where they're still out and about on the corn. So if you have a product with a seven to 10 day residual, um, you're gonna hopefully be able to expose them on their journey across the plant before they make it into the ear. And this is complicated because this eggs, the eggs may be laid over the period of a few weeks, they'll hatch over the period of a few weeks. So really, hopefully if you play your cards right, you'll be able to kind of nail them in the peak and not worry too much about what happens on the tail ends. I wanted to draw your attention to a really nice resource to learn more about western bean cutworm. My colleague at Nebraska, Julie Peterson, has put out a nice uh, really farmer and crop consultant friendly webinar on western bean cutworm biology and management. This is a free webinar open to the public. I think it's about 30 minutes long, very high quality stuff. Uh, all you have to do is go to Plant Management Network, or you can just Google Plant Management Network Western Bean Cutworm, and that'll take you right to this webinar. It's pre-recorded, so you can just watch it at your leisure. So Plant Management Network Western Bean Cutworm. Don't try to read this table. I don't want you to read what's on the table, but my point of putting it up here is to let you know that this resource exists. And this is not just in the context of Western bean cutworm, but for any type of BT product, this is a very useful trait table to help you understand what hybrids of corn contain, what types of BT, what herbicide properties, and what insects they're meant to control, because it's kind of confusing. There's a lot of product literature out there, and it's, it's, it's sort of hard to sort out, God, what, what's this one supposed to control? This is published every year by Chris Stefanzo at Michigan State, and then with contributions from myself and Pat Porter at Texas A&M. 
So Chris is kind of the ringleader and Pat and I are sort of co-authors slash cheerleaders for the project. The new one for 2018, we just uh, posted it recently. And what this table does is it pulls together all the different BT transformation events, gives the trade names, tells you what proteins are in it and what insects are supposed to be controlled by it or what herbicide traits it has. So when I say an event, an event is a gene or a group of genes uh, that's inserted into corn for a certain effect. And it usually has a technical name like MON810. These then are given a trade name. So uh, uh, it might be a combination of, for example, uh, VIP3A is the protein that comes from the event MR162, and the trade name is Agrisure Viptera, and this provides broad LEP control. Walking you through the table, this column has the name of the trait package, like AcreMax, whatever it might be. Uh, usually there's an acronym that goes with the trade name, like AcreMax has AM that you might see on the bag tags. This column tells you which BT proteins are in there, such as Cry1F that I've been talking about, or VIP3A, or Cry1AB. That by itself uh, might not be particularly useful, but this column hopefully is the most useful. These are the different insects that a given trait package is marketed for. And there's a key at the bottom of the table that tells you, like one of these CEW is corn earworm. ECB, European corn worm, and so forth. So if there's an X in this, it, that's what it is marketed for, that particular BT. The herbicide traits, which herbicide trait a particular uh, trade uh, name uh, hybrid package has is there. There's a column summarizing the refuge requirements and telling you whether the refuge is already in a bag or if it has to be planted separately. And then this is a new thing that we put in this year because we thought it was important. And this is a resistance to BT. So if we have a type of BT that resistance has been documented for scientifically and that's been published in the scientific literature, we will list which insects that there has been documented resistance for it, at least somewhere. And then there we have all of the uh, citations for this are posted in the same place where the whole table is posted. And this is to give people a heads up about things that maybe this doesn't work so well on in certain places. And if that's a red flag for you, if you're really worried about FAW, fall armyworm, then you might want to dig a little deeper and talk to your extension folks about, well, is BT losing effectiveness against fall armyworm in my area? Uh, I will tell you there's been some sort of flack, some pushback. Uh, for putting this in there, but we thought that it was time that this was information that needs to be pulled together for people. This table is just a useful reference uh, that we've pulled things together so that to help people better understand what these fancy corn things they're buying really contain because it's not so easy to just know that. Right now it's housed at the Texas A&M site because Chris usually houses it at her site at um, Michigan, but they're tearing up her webpage right now. So Pat Porter at Texas A&M is temporarily hosting it, uh, texasinsects.org. And then there's a tab on there for the BT table. Or if you just, again, Google BT trait table, you'll pretty much hit right here.
and this site will always contain the latest version if we've made any tweaks to it. So even though that's not directly pertaining to Western Bean, but I think it's a useful resource for anybody who worries about um, what's going on in BT corn. In the final portion of this No Till Farmer podcast, let's briefly revisit some of the questions attendees at the 2018 National No-Tillage Conference asked Tillman about the effects of planting dates and natural predators can have on western bean cutworm pressure, whether fungicide applications can be effective, and the survivability of these insects in cold climates. Question number one, in colder climates, how does western bean cutworm survive or come back? Insects have all kinds of interesting mechanisms for surviving the winter, even the ones that um, rely on burrowing down into the ground. They also undergo physiological changes where they actually turn their blood into something like antifreeze. So a lot of cold tolerant insects have like really hardcore physiological changes that let them withstand the cold. The second question was, can fungicides be used reliably to control western bean cutworm and what about the timing of those applications? The trouble is there can be a pretty broad range of the moths and when they're active and when they're laying eggs. And it can be as much as like a three-week spread and when they peak. So three weeks is a long time. If you're lucky and your, you know, calendar spray hits them good, but if they happen to be like super early that year or super late or wherever relative to your calendar spray, you're going to miss the wave. So um, I just wish they were more dependable and when they showed up, but it seems to be very degree day driven. And we don't have good degree day models for when the peaks are going to occur. That would be very nice if we could have some degree day models to more accurately predict when we might see the most western bean cutworm activity. Question number three that was asked by attendees was, how effective are planting dates in providing local coverage against western bean cutworm? In my experience, the older the corn is when the peak moth flight, the less attractive that is to them. And so I tried to do an experiment last summer in Fulton County, Ohio, where I was comparing the VIP3A BT against the Cry1F against uh, untraded control. And our farmer cooperator um, really likes to plant early, so he planted really early, and by the time we got to peak moth flight, the I felt like the corn was too far along and we could find nary an egg mass there. But in our another farm down the road where we didn't have an experiment and the corn was a lot younger, um, there were good numbers of egg masses. So I do think that planting date is important because the older the corn, the less attractive it is for egg laying. So um, also we worry about replants when people do replants of corn. And so they've got corn in different age classes on their farm, and they only have a limited amount of time for scouting. We tell them, focus on the replant corn, because that's going to be the more of the magnet for the, for the egg laying than your older corn. So I think planting date is, is important. I don't have a, like a set schedule, I can tell you, but older corn is less attractive for sure. The next question from attendees asked, are there natural predators that can handle western bean cutworm? What do you think of reports that getting bricks numbers up high enough in plants could make crops less attractive to this pest? I can't speak to the bricks, but as terms of natural enemies, you have a fairly short, narrow, just as with the insecticide, you have a fairly short 
window of time for the natural enemies to be effective because by the time they've gotten all nice and tucked into that cornier, most of the natural enemies, the general natural enemies that you have out and about in a cornfield, um, are, they're going to be protected from them. They're most vulnerable in their egg stage. And so there are parasitoids of um, caterpillar eggs that have been effective in corn, for example, um, uh, corn earworm, European corn borer. There have been work done on parasitoids that lay, a, lay the, so these little parasitic wasps will lay their eggs in the egg of the caterpillar and destroy it before it even has a chance to ha uh, hatch. So trichogramma is one type of a, a parasitic wasp. To my knowledge, nobody has done research on how effective they are against um, Western Maine cutworm eggs. It's just it, research hasn't been done. The last question that we had from attendees asked, can improving soil health and raising healthier plants reduce their susceptibility to Western Bean cutworm? Well, certainly a healthier plant is going to be able to withstand a lot more than an unhealthy plant. I, I had a really interesting conversation once with a uh, farmer, and this was when I worked in South Dakota, and it was a farmer in western Minnesota came to one of our field days, and he said that he and soybean aphid was a big deal then in that part of the country. Lady beetles are incredible predators of soybean aphid. They're just awesome. And I think a large part of how people get into trouble in that part of the country is they just spray it R2 regardless of what's there. They knock out the lady beetles and then they've got all these aphids. Well, this guy told me that he and all of his neighbors in this, this certain radius made a pact that they just weren't going to spray their soybeans. And this was the only like circle of the county that didn't have aphid outbreaks. So I thought that was pretty cool. But I mean, I'm an entomologist. I've seen enough cases where, I mean, that's a happy story. There are also not happy stories where definitely insecticide is, is you know, pretty much the only option to save the day. We'd like to sincerely thank Kelly Tillman for sharing important strategies and considerations for managing western bean cutworm and protecting valuable no-till corn. For those listeners who would like to hear more about successful strategies for no-tilling, please visit no-tillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at jdauberstein at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2430. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-tillfarmer with a farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For Kelly Tillman, Montag Manufacturing, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Senior Editor John Dauberstein. Thank you for listening. <laughs>